Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Peter Valenzuela, who is a family medicine specialist currently based in California, where he is chief medical officer for Mercy Medical Group. He attended medical school at UT Southwestern in Dallas and completed his family medicine residency at John Peter Smith Hospital. Dr. Valenzuela spent four years as assistant dean for clinical affairs and chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine. He enjoys hiking, reading, and wine tasting in addition to cartooning. Speaking of cartooning, Dr. Valenzuela is the creator of Doc Related, which is a webcomic that follows the experiences of physicians, staff, administrations working within a large health system. The comic and his recently published book were inspired by his experiences both as a physician and now as an executive. If you want to look at some of the comic work and get an inside glance at the life of a doctor entrepreneur, you can follow Dr. Valenzuela on Instagram at doc underscore related or his website at www.doc-related.com. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Valenzuela to the end. Well, hello there. Happy to finally have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate uh, you making time for to chat with me today. Of course. No, we really appreciate you being here. And I do want to start off with your clinical day. So you're currently seeing patients on a half-time basis. What inspired your decision for kind of lessening the clinic time? Yeah, well, you know, actually, I do less than that now just because I am a chief medical officer. But, you know, I, I started off in rural medicine in West Texas. And back then, I was a very typical rural physician. I, I did inpatient care. I did ambulatory care. I uh, went to the ER when patients showed up. I um, did uh, EGDs, colonoscopies, tubules, tonsils, appies. I delivered babies. I did C-sections. It was really the full gamut of medicine. And a couple of years into it, I realized that I didn't know a lot about the business side of medicine. And so I decided to go back to school and, and I got a, a physician's executive MBA. And it really helped me in my professional life. You know, I, I better understood insurance plans and denials and referrals and all these things we deal with. But it kind of, it, it lit a, a spark in me to really try to impact healthcare on a bigger scale. You know, I, I really still enjoy seeing patients and, and affecting those patients one-on-one. But now as a chief medical officer, I can actually impact populations and try to drive healthcare in different directions. And that's really how I've slowly lessened the amount of clinical practice that I do, but I still believe in seeing patients at my core. I'm a physician and I I want to continue to do that. Yeah. And it is so great to have a physician kind of stepping up into the role of trying to mitigate or trying to see how the space of business side of medicine looks like. I think it's very important because, you know, we have hospitals, we have clinics, especially hospitals, right? Hospitals, it is a business at the end of the day, right? And 
in a business, especially in the hospital setting, we have executives and titles with someone who's not a physician, sure. right? And they're making the decisions. And you have a lot of comics, kind of, uh, you know, web comics that are based around that, yeah. right? Um, that kind of aspect of medicine. And so was that something that you also saw uh, which is like, okay, this is something that's lacking where a physician needs to be there to really show, okay, here's where we're moving the wrong way, which is not patient-centered, like we're focusing too much on the business or vice versa. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's it's funny that you say that. I actually recently presented in San Francisco at the Healthcare Burnout Symposium. And my presentation was actually around physician administrator communication. And, and I used my comics to... to put some levity to that disconnect that you're talking about. You know, when you look statistically at healthcare organizations, healthcare organizations that are led by physicians as their CEO actually have quality scores that are 25% higher than other organizations that are not, as well as higher engagement and satisfaction from the staff and clinicians within those organizations. And I think, unfortunately, there's not a lot of physicians who have had that business background that can actually sit at a table and have that administrative speak, you know, to talk with non-clinical people. And it's getting better, though. But I, I think that there's still a ways to go. And like you said, you know, there's an adage, if you're not at the table, then you're probably on the menu. And, and we as physicians have had things done to us versus being at the table to try to work with people to say, hey, is this the right thing that we're doing? You know, there's, there's statistics that show that only 16% of healthcare organizations consider the impact to the well-being of the staff being affected when they make strategic decisions. And I think that we mm. need to change that. We really need to change that paradigm and have the right people at the table that can make the best decisions, not just for the business, but also for the patients and the staff and, and everyone else that's involved in the healthcare system. Burnout, it is a indirect byproduct of not having uh, a physician at the administrator level because you are overworking these physicians, especially residents, right? 80 hours work week, which is intense, incredibly intense to consider that, hey, we have people who are driving trucks, right? Truck drivers. And they are told that they need to rest after a certain period because otherwise they would be putting other people, other drivers at risk, right? It's interesting because the same concept doesn't apply to physicians because physicians are taking care of patients, right? But they're burnt out, they're tired, they're running on coffee, quote unquote, like zombies. And it's just not the same level of care that is applied. You also talked about disconnect. And I do want to talk about Chip, one of your uh, characters uh, later on. But First, I do want to dive into kind of your time management to balance with entrepreneurship. It is a very intense field, which is, you know, having an executive position and having to oversee a lot of the moving parts. How do you schedule out of your days? Sure. No, that's a great question. And, you know, as physicians, we all have different work ethics. You know, we, we all tend to put in the more hours and, you know, we start earlier and we finish later. And it, it tends to be kind of at the core of who we are. I can tell you for the last you know, I've been practicing medicine for 20 years and I wake up at 5 a.m. every morning, whether it's a weekend or not. And I can tell you that the entrepreneurial endeavors that I've done, like writing my book, Doc Related, I've done some consulting with some companies. A lot of that work happens between 5 to 7 a.m. And then I go to work and then I come home and I'll put in maybe another few hours at the end of the night before I go to bed. And I think that we can 
fill our times however we choose. And I can say, you know, I'm definitely a millennial, so I definitely know social media and other things, but I don't spend a lot of my time on it. You know, I, I dedicate hours of time to the things that I want to impact. And so I'm I'm not big on social media and Facebook. I do have all of those, but I have scheduled time that I put in. Otherwise, I know that between five to seven, that's my entrepreneurial time. You know, seven to seven to five is my work time. And after I get home from work, I've got another few hours to do things that I enjoy. You know, I've been married for uh, 22 years now. And so my wife is pretty good about letting me know. <laughs> Thank you. She's good about letting me know when I'm passing my my hours of time because I want to spend time with my wife as well. No, that's good uh, to have someone else keep you in check because no matter how scheduled we like to get, sometimes we do over schedule, overbook ourselves. Um, so you mentioned five to seven, that specific two hour time frame, and is that because you notice that during the morning you have more of that creative mindset that allows you to really enhance your your like the work that you're putting forth in terms of the comic book. Yeah, definitely. I, I can say that I'm a morning person. You know, you have the people that say I, I do my better work at the at the end of the night, late at night, and you have others that say I like to get up early and, and get it done early. And it's funny because my wife is the opposite of me. She does more of a creative thinking in the evenings. My wife is actually a winemaker out here in California, so she's got her passions as well, and and it works for us. That's nice. I do want to ask though, like, how do you guys kind of balance that her being kind of quote unquote night owl and then you being an early bird? Is there a way to really mitigate or spend more time with each other through that? Yeah, I mean, we definitely do. I mean, we, we go to dinner and we, we go on hikes and go on walks. I think the advantage that we have, and I don't know that I can call it an advantage, but my wife and I don't, we purposely chose not to have children. So we don't have kids. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like trying to do this and juggle you know, raising your children and, you know, for, for the people listening, that's, you know, I, I really applaud you if you're going through this and because it takes a lot of discipline to be, be able to do all of those things well. Nice, nice. All right. So we're going to shift gears a little bit uh, into your comic. So your comic is made up of characters who portray different generations. So baby boomers, generation Xers, and also millennials. So they all have their own unique issues and fun twists, right? At how they perceive and go through medicine in your comic. So my generation, which is Generation Z, uh, recently started entering medicine. And I'm sure you've noticed uh, within the past few years. So how would you characterize us? It just... <laughs> I'm curious. You know what? I am, I'm going to... Uh... I guess I'll defer on that one. I, I haven't researched the Gen Z population well enough. And the last thing I want to do is, is upset people if I do a bad portrayal. So I, it might be easier for me to ask you that question because this is insightful learning for me as well. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is definitely heavy on technology. Uh, I, think, I, I think with all the uh, YouTube videos uh, that are highlighting, you know, day in the life of a physician, day in the life of a med student. It is very much like tech based. You wake up a certain time, you have your coffee, and then you're literally spending time on the screen the whole day, I would say, you know, learning things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is very interesting because I feel like in a way we're kind of dissociated from reality yeah. in some sense. And it is very tiring uh because you do lose that 
external and real life support group that you would normally have if you weren't so into the tech world and into the cyberspace, if that makes any sense. Sure. No, that's a good point. And I hear you. And actually, there's advantages to that as well. There's a lot of studies that have shown that people who are gamers, you know, who do video games actually have a lot more of uh, an ability to do things like surgical robotic, you know, when you think of Da Vinci's and others, oh, there's studies yeah. that have shown that people in the younger generation or those that spend a lot of time gaming actually are a lot more accurate and, and uh, quicker when it comes to using uh, robots and using um, laparoscopic type techniques. So there's, there's benefits to that as well, obviously. Yeah, it's definitely very nuanced. And yeah, so I do want to go back to, so you have a very well-founded business background, as we talked about. Do you think that has helped you manage, I would say, your role as being the chief medical officer of a large multi-specialty medical group, right? So I guess while you're answering that, I would really appreciate on for the audience if you can give us a rundown on the tasks of a chief medical officer. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I will tell you, you know, I joke with the other physicians I work with and tell them that I, I went to business school so I could be able to translate administrative speak to doctor speak. And and I think that you guys you've seen probably some of those comics where I do just that, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 the truth is it, you really do have to have an understanding of of the language between the two you know um i i gave a presentation around how administrators and physicians differ in their um language context and connotation you know i've had doctors who come to me who are super excited and they say hey listen i just talked to the manager and i let her know that i really need a scribe and and she told me that she's actually going to examine and evaluate it to see if, you know, she thinks it's something hopefully we can try to do, but she's got to explore it further. He said, so I'm getting a scribe. I'm like, that's not exactly what that means, right? That means they're going to look into it and they'll follow up with you, right? I've had I've yeah. had doctors come to me and say, I talked to the hospital CEO and I, about this Mako device I want for orthopedics. And, you know, they actually, he says he's really supportive in concept. And so I really think it's going to happen. I said, again. Being supportive in concept doesn't mean that you're going to get the device. It just means that he thinks it might be a good idea, but he's still got to look at it. So it's those tiny little nuances of how people communicate that either build trust or mistrust, right? So we have doctors that go, oh, man, last time I talked to him, he promised to do this, but it didn't happen. And on the administrator side, it's like, that's not really what I said, but you know, I'm really sorry that that's what you thought. Um, and for me, that's just an example of how having a business degree and having that exposure to the administrative side helps you get some nuances, right? Neither of them is really being untruthful, but they're not really understanding what that context means. You know, for me as a chief medical officer of Mercy Medical Group, we have almost 500 physicians and clinicians here in Sacramento. And and I'm responsible, yeah, and I'm responsible for the quality components, the patient satisfaction, patient, uh, you know, physician performance, the uh, APPs as well. Um, I deal with behavioral issues. I deal with risk management issues. I do a lot of recruiting, contract negotiations. Um, basically, it's like overseeing your business, right? And 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 that is what we are. We're a private medical group that contracts with Dignity Health, and so we are our own corporation. And and part of my job is making sure that our business runs well. So we we have to manage our finances. You know, we look at spreadsheets. We look at quality metrics. Mm. We look at value based incentives, and, and we try our best to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the patients and and keeping our doors open. Yeah, one of the things that you highlighted um, is expectation management. It seems like a lot of 
it is going to be communication that really heavily focuses on managing expectations of different parties because you're in the space where you are the mediator from one group to another. The other thing that you talked about is recruitment, right? So what are you looking for when you are recruiting a physician? Uh, what kind of characteristics? Uh, is there something that is very specific that you think is like your priority? You know, I, it's funny. I, I've been doing this for so long. I, you know, I, it really boils down to what I call are the three C's, right? The, the person that we recruit has to be critical to our group. They need to be filling some void that we have that will help us. You know, right now that's very heavily primary care dependent because primary care is a big need, but it's also other specialties. The other thing they have to be is capable. Ideally, you want them to come from good programs. You want them to feel that they're going to be successful on their own. I mean, obviously we're willing to mentor and onboard people, but you want to know that they have the core background capabilities to do the work. And then for me, the most popular or, or the most important thing that I look for is they have to be culturally compatible. They got to be people that are going to work alongside you as teammates. They got to be people that are going to te- uh, treat the staff with respect. They got to be people who are going to be willing to cover for one another when things happen. And, you know, really people that you want, you feel comfortable referring patients to. So that's really at the core for what we look for and what I look for when I'm recruiting physicians and clinicians. I feel like that can be applied to some other avenues as well, the, the three C's that you just mentioned. So you have given international presentations and lectures on change management, right? So healthcare innovation, and obviously leadership development. So out of those three pillars that I just mentioned, which are obviously needed for, I guess, sustainable development, which one has been the hardest to implement from your experience? Uh, It can be on a personal level or an organizational level. So the three things are change management, uh, healthcare innovation, and obviously leadership development. Yeah, they're all they're all difficult in their own way. I can tell you that that change management tends to be the one that that can be the most difficult because it really is trying to help other people understand why you need to go in a different direction. You know, and so you have to mm. use, you know, your powers of persuasion to be able to do that. And, you know, I think it was Tolstoy that said that, uh, you know, every man wants to change the world, but no man ever says he wants to change himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and it's really, it's insightful because that is what happens is people may not necessarily see that there needs to be a change. You have to educate them and help them understand. And you also have to engage them in the process. And and some are more receptive than others. And change, you know, when I, a lot of what I've done in my career has been nothing but change management. I get hired to come in and completely revamp either a group or organization or company to to really go in the right direction. And so it usually takes about three to five years for people first to understand it, then for people to feel comfortable with it, and then for people to be willing to do it. And it's a long game. You know, you got to be willing to do that. And and most of change management involves influence. And when I say influence, I mean, there's things that you can use to help people understand what needs to happen. You know, you have to be, you have to be likable. You have to have uh, some authority. You have to have knowledge about it. You have to have social proof, show them that other people are doing this and they're successful. You know, you have to have them commit to it to understand why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to let them know that if we don't, we might not be around in the future. And, and uh, you know, again, that's a long process. I can imagine why it's the hardest because exactly what you said is that there, there are going to be people who are not as receptive to change. I mean, in some ways it is 
understand well because some people have such a grounded belief in how they're doing things it can potentially be right but obviously there's better metrics better ways to handle things so would you say that so the last thing that you mentioned is like okay if we don't go through this change there is the possibility that the business or the clinic or whatever is not going to be around anymore is that the shifting i guess stimulus that really changes uh someone's mindset who is not as receptive yeah i mean in some respects you know the the older physicians and clinicians will be like i don't care i'm going to retire in a few years right uh, you know and and the younger ones will be a lot more invested in it they want to make it you know but you you have to appeal to the things that matter to them if you say, hey, listen, we're, this is going to impact our staff. We might have to cut staff if we can't do this well. Then some are going to feel compassionate and say, okay, I understand that. You know, if you say, hey, listen, if, if we don't do this well, it's actually, it could affect your income. Some people respond to that, you know, or if we don't do this well, it's going to affect patient care. And, you know, it just depends on what the person resonates with and what they value. And, and I think that as you get to know people, you need to know them individually to know what drives them and what their core values are. What would be your recommendation for someone who wants to get into the clinic space and they want to start their own clinic? Uh, let's just say that they're currently in their later stage of medical school or they're in their residency. Uh, what advice would you have? As far as when you say start their own clinic, you mean like, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Having their own medical group where they have an established space, uh, they get their license to practice uh, and open up the clinic and then obviously have patients coming in. It can be primary care. It can be. Sure. Yeah. I, I think first I would say definitely hire the right people. You know, I think that at the core of interview processes is knowing that you're going to, these are people that are going to work with you or for you. You know, and I think that when people leave, when, when people leave an organization, it's either because you didn't onboard them right, you didn't provide them feedback, you didn't hold them accountable, or you just didn't hire the right person. And so you have to be very cautious about your selection process. The second thing, of course, is you have to make sure that you've got people that have business savvy or knowledge involved. Mm. You know, when I first started practice, you know, my my wife would do my billing for my hospital stuff. She was never trained in it, but she learned how to do HICFA forms and others. And there were a lot of literally mom and pop type shops um, of physicians and spouses and friends and family members. And nowadays, because healthcare has become so bureaucratic, because there are so many regulations and so many metrics that we're measured by, you have to make sure that you include people that have that skill set so that you can be successful. You dive into bureaucracy and challenges with administration and bureaucracy in your webcomic a lot. So, um, I mean, we can obviously gauge kind of what your viewpoints are or what you have seen the other characters that are in the comics how their viewpoints are so based on that like how can we really evolve the medical field where it is heavily bureaucratic heavily you know um there's just so many regulations that are going on as you as you mentioned um how does that impact the patient care right sure. aspect of medicine which is basically what a lot of what i mean i would say all doctors hopefully go into medicine for yeah. right no that's a great question I, and i think that there's different ways to do that and you know and i mentioned that in my book doctor related because i you know, right now we have, I mean, CMS has over 1700 quality metrics that they track, you know, and we spend exorbitant amount of dollars 
hiring people and, and manually tracking these things. You know, there's regulations around uh, virtual visits and, you know, you can take care of patients, but only within your state. Be careful about, you have to ask them where they are before you can care for them. And you can only prescribe to certain places. We have a lot of regulations related to that. And I think that what we found with COVID in the last few years is that we can get very innovative when we need to. We put in virtual care quickly because most organizations had the ability to do it, but the payers wouldn't pay for it, right? So if you did virtual care a few years ago, you'd get 25 bucks for the visit. You know, now you, if you do virtual care, you get the same payment you would get if they were there in person. And so we have to align the incentives to be fair, to allow us to be innovative. And I think that the same applies to quality metrics and others, you know, we have to cut the quality metrics in half and we really should be measuring what outcomes are, what, what matters to people. You know, we spent a lot of time saying, you know, did you prescribe an antibiotic for bronchitis or did you not? See, and I think they're all important in their own way, but we're not spending enough. We're not investing enough in the social determinants of health. You know, I think we have to be, we have to be humble as physicians and know that what we do for patients only impacts about 10% to 20% of their overall health. The other 80 to 90% is based on things that happen when they're not with us. You know, whether they're smoking, whether they're drinking, whether they have jobs, whether they have housing whether they have good water, whether they're in safe neighborhoods. I mean, we really should redirect a lot of what we're trying to do on the health outcome to the social determinants of health. And I think that's when we'll really make an impact on patients. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that. Uh, one of the main reasons why I chose to pursue my medical career at Rochester School of Medicine is because they really highlight the biopsychosocial model, mm -hmm. which is that the patient is not just your diagnosis. It's it's more than that. It's the, it's the psychology that the patient is experiencing, the, the social aspects that you just talked about, having access to good water quality, things like that. And I'm so glad that you also talked about innovation, right, uh, with COVID. So I guess that's a good segue into my next question is that from the overwhelming positive reviews on your new book a theme that stands out is that obviously the book uses humor to tackle the discrepancies and i guess gaps in the healthcare system but then you also take it a step further to encourage everyone who participated in the system to play their respective role in being uh and being an agent of change right yeah. so what would you say or who would you say has the most impact in terms of changing some of the issues? Would it be on the administrative level or the physician level? So in other words, if you had to choose from the hierarchy that medicine operates within, uh, who would have the biggest impact in terms of making a positive difference in healthcare? Would it come down to Chip, your, uh, your <laughs> who's the VP of operations? Yeah, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good point. So, you know, Chip is our non-clinician non administrator that, uh, really thinks that the physicians like them, but they don't, you know, they don't trust them. They don't trust them. But, you know, I honestly think that it's really going to be the physicians and clinicians. It's going to be the people on the front lines that are going to impact change. It's going to be those people that understand the patients and their challenges, but also have an understanding of the business aspects and why decisions are made. And so you're going to need people like yourself and other young physicians who have that passion to drive change, to be able to say, Hey, enough is enough. You know, let's, let's pass some regulations around, you know, how we do referrals and pre-authorizations, you know, I mean, in Texas, actually, they recently passed what's called a gold card, which is for doctors that do um, prior authorizations for images or other things. And every time they're reviewed, they're accurate, right? So this, they have, they, they get to know the doctors that really don't do 
pre-authorizations unless they have to, right? Referrals. And so for those doctors now, they're giving them a gold card, which means I know that every time you do this, you're doing it for the right reason. So I'm not going to spend time checking it and making your staff, you know, explain it and describe it. You know, that is the kind of stuff we need to be able to drive and change, right? We need to remove those barriers that require more staff time and more of our time to be able to take care of patients. And, and I think it can happen. I really do. Thank you so much. I mean, I feel like this episode will be incredibly beneficial for people who are about to get into the medical field because we are going over the bureaucracy and all the all the aspects of change. And so unfortunately, we are kind of near the end of the podcast. Uh, however, as per the title of the podcast, Doctors In, uh, we like to go through a guided story as a closing remark. So we want to imagine that you are a traveler who stopped by Doctors Inn uh, to rest for lunch. Now, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, ask you to share one quote or piece of advice so that I can frame it on my wall. Uh, what would that piece of advice be? It can be something that you live your life by, for example, a principle or an ideology. Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, I, I think for me, the piece of advice, especially for, for young physicians and others out there is is to look for the incongruencies in what you do. I think what we've what we lack is that vision for the oddities of what we experience. And and I think that once you find things that you go through every day and you look around and say, it doesn't make sense. It's those things that you need to focus on and find ways to address. And that's really what I try to do is I I always, you know, the way I get my comic ideas is is I go through a day at work and I think of something that I went through or something that someone went through and go, that's pretty odd. I can't believe we're having to do that. And that inspires my comic. And so I say, keep your eyes open for the things that are odd and see what you can do to affect them. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, I think you have a really good problem solving and problem identification mindset that um, we're starting to pick out. Uh, so with all that said, um, do you have any last closing remarks, even, you know, perhaps anything for the book, uh, the comic book, the web comics? Yeah, I would just, you know, um, I would make a plea that people who listen could uh, explore my book. It's called Doc Related, A Physician's Guide to Fixing Our Alien Healthcare System. It's on Amazon. And it was, it had been a bestseller for about the first six weeks. And so one of the feedbacks that I got is that this should be a must read for all uh, medical students and physicians looking to go into healthcare because it does shine a light on some of those things that you may not be aware of. Yeah. And also it is a very, uh, a very fun take. Sure. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me on your show. Of course. Thank you so much. Like, we really appreciate you taking your time out for this. We made it work. And honestly, it has been incredible. We learned a lot, especially about, you know, being the agent of change. So thank you again. Hey, thanks a lot. Best of luck. Thank you. All right. So a major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram and on youtube to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes also don't forget to check out dr valenzuela's book doc related a physician's guide to fixing our ailing healthcare system which as he just said can be found on amazon all right guys take care and see you next time bye <laughs>